So this podcast is presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics an easy-to-access set of resources and educational materials wherever they are. So feel free to take a look at the description in the footnotes of the podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do and just how much content we put out there for your education. Many thanks. So welcome guys to the Pre-Hospital Care podcast, um, brought to you by myself, Owen Walker and Rich McGurr. Good morning everyone, hello. Morning, morning. Um, so we are here to talk about another uh, contemporary pre-hospital care issue which we find occurs quite frequently and that it has been rarely taught or spoken about really. So we, we want to um, go through today and broach um, family witness resuscitation and also how to deal with difficult uh, news and breaking bad news to the family. So as we're aware, um, we are critical care paramedics within London, practicing within London. And Rich, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Not bad. Good. Not bad. I've just had my coffee, which is all yeah, good. Yeah, same here. Um, so all good. Um, so w- this is something that we um, that we do quite a lot of, unfortunately, isn't yeah, it? Is. Yes, it is. Yeah. And um, and something that we've had to refine over the process of quite a few years because we haven't always got it right. Um, but um, no, yeah, no, certainly. But um, but what I'd like to do is is just introduce our guest today. So our guest speaker, who is a fellow colleague of ours, uh, the much esteemed and much respected Nick Brown. Good morning. Morning. Morning, Owen. Morning. Morning, morning, Rich. Morning. 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 Yeah, morning. I'm good. I'm good. Morning. And I too have had a coffee, which you didn't pay for, by the way. <laughs> I, that is true. I've witnessed that. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like a bit of a miser. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, it's good to be here. Yeah, I think you're doing a good thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Look forward to thanks. hearing them. Um, so, what? Yeah, what we're here to do today, really, is um, this is is a topic close to my own heart, but certainly is close to Nick's, really. And uh, Nick has certainly published some interesting um, empirical literature on this topic. So, what we wanted to do really is delve into it, delve into really just really pick apart both Nick why you um, are passionate about this topic mm, yeah. and then how do we approach family witness <clears throat> resuscitation um, and and then just dissect down some of the methods of breaking bad news but um, Rich over to yeah, you. Yeah so I mean I, the thing I was really interested Nick so I mean we've all throughout our career I guess f- from the start of working pre-hospital care one way or another you end up breaking bad news of some form or another mm. to patients, family sure. etc. Um, there's not. I've never really found much out there. Certainly, I wasn't really taught much about how to do it. Um, what kind of what got you into looking into this area more deeply? What is it about this that interested you? Well, you've hit on a you know the nail on the head in some ways. There isn't a lot out there. Um, yeah, I guess every uh, <coughs> excuse me um, every story has a beginning, and mine was. Sometime in summer 2014, the first cohort of APPs had come out in London um, in May of that year. And uh, I'd started my shift at Westminster as I normally do. I was in central London and got a call to a cardiac arrest in south London. Um, so headed down there uh, as the local crews were sort of dispatched. And it was to a home address where um, a guy had, a 50 year old guy had been out for a run, come back home. Wife was cooking some breakfast and his son was doing some GCS homework, GCSE homework as I remember. Um, he'd announced the fact that he wasn't feeling very well, gone upstairs, um, 
And at some point, his son went upstairs to see if he's okay and got there with enough time to sort of hear him say, I don't feel well, um, and then help me before collapsing in the bathroom. Um, so naturally, 99 was called, uh, the local ambulance crews turned up first and found his son performing chest compressions in the bathroom of the family home. Um, they didn't have enough room to work there, so they dragged him through to the bedroom where his primary school kids who were at school and blissfully ignorant at that point of what was going on, um, just to create a bit more space where the resuscitation was carried out. By the time I got there, from a clinical point of view, everything was sort of going um, well, and I intervened very little um, before sort of saying, oh, well, I'll go and talk to the family. Has anyone done that yet? No one had. So I went downstairs really with very little idea of what to say, no structure as such. Um, and really within a few short moments and a few, a handful of words, literally turned their life upside down. So the GCSE homework went flying across the room. The wall was being punched. The wife collapsed on the floor uh, and then crawled over to me. Um, and, and guys, we, we've, we've seen it, haven't we? These very feral outbursts yeah. Yeah, yeah, that um, yeah. people are capable of producing only when they hear something that is truly dreadful. So um, she then literally crawled up my uniform, um, bursting buttons as she went, pleading with me, begging with me in the most sort of extreme sort of, uh, using the most extreme language, I guess, um, to save her husband and the father of her children. You know, how would she tell her babies, as she, as she referred to them, the primary school kids at school, you know, this, this terrible news? Um, and although I hadn't broken the bad news then, I had actually just merely informed the fact that, um, you know, he was in cardiac arrest. Um, and the prognosis was bleak. Nevertheless, um, it was catastrophic news. And as I sort of stood there in the, you know, kitchen lounge area, you know, looking at sort of three plates of uneaten breakfast, you know, I, I literally had no idea what to say. And you guys know me quite well. Normally I have something to say. Yeah, normally, yeah. Um, on that occasion, I didn't. So um, I eventually pulled my way uh, put myself away from the situation, went outside and, and did what we do, which is phone a friend, um, another APP who was in the control room, and we chatted through some stuff. Um, and that really was the beginning, I think, of me thinking, you know, we, we really have to do this better. So went back in there with a bit more of a plan this time and moved things forward. We pronounced role, um, you know, we declared the patient dead and supported the family as best we could. But... Um, that led to me, you know, picking up on your point, Rich, you know, looking at what was out there. Um, and, and of course, there was very little. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really, the, the strategies that I've put in place since then have been more experiential rather than anything based too much you know, solidly in literature. Although there is some stuff out there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nick, that's pretty powerful, actually. And, um, and that's the short version. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> no, indeed. Indeed, that's pretty powerful. Um, I think we, me and Rich can both resonate with that, really. And mm, sure. I have all, all also had some really, really <clears throat> challenging, as I'm sure you have. Yeah, read. I have. And it's, it's whatever that you say there, kind of, there's probably four or five things that different patients immediately spring to mind. Mm, that, where, yeah. you know, I can identify exactly with a really similar scene. Mm. Um, and it's, it's thank you for sharing that because I think it's really useful. It's yeah. really important yeah. for when we do this because actually there's going to be people listening to this really will identify with that. Yeah, indeed, they really will. Yeah. yeah, of course, yes, and um, yeah, like yourselves, you know, there have been other. And I think back further to my sort of pre and you know, advanced paramedic career when you know I probably 
stumbled clumsily into the kitchen where the families were sort of huddled together waiting like they often do I mean it's interesting the the different sort of expressions um, that we get from you know family loved ones bystanders in these situations but you know when I think back you know um, to perhaps some of the less refined ways that I approach this subject just sort of out of ignorance but I think being an advanced paramedic we know that in London we do 1.6 cardiac arrests per 12 hour shifts every time we go to work um, and it does give you the opportunity to you know, build up the experience and really examine your practice. Um, there are a number of figures banded around in terms of average paramedic um, you know, cardiac arrest attendance per year, and they sort of range from one point something to four point something, I think, depending on which source you use. But um, we do have this intense experience that we can um, yeah, use to really think about you know, how we approach things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Nick, that's yeah. As Rich said, thanks for sharing. That's a really, uh, that's a really personal story and also um, quite an uh, emotive one. Um, so just from a perspective, um, just panning out, what are some of the biggest challenges with the scene dynamics that you that you face or that you feel that you face um, with cardiac arrest? Sure. So I think in terms of you know supporting families, um, the the imperative is continuance of clinical care. And as much as it, we recognise the importance of supporting families and not ignoring them. I mean, if we take, now, when I published that article, it was 2016, the data was from 15, 16, but, and this is not Woodstein data, but of all the cardiac arrests that um, we attend, including those that we declare deceased without resuscitation attempt, I think only 4% of those uh, patients survive so that's 96% of the patients we attend die and, and I think that can help us sort of refocus you know thinking about just who our patient is because in most of those you know obviously in those 96% of the time it's, it's the families there but nevertheless we know we do need to get on and deal with the clinical aspects of care so I think if we're saying that you know supporting families is important and delivering care is important then the two need to go together, hand in hand. Um, um, it's a rare event, of course, and we know that when you're faced with a rare event, then our bandwidth, the phrase that we're kind of used to talking about now, is going to be um, pretty much filled up. And I think although, you know, in educational programmes, there's a real strong emphasis on um, on the clinical side of care, there's very little on the on supporting the families. Yeah. So we know that when we come across these uh, jobs, you know, predominantly we're going to be focused on dealing with the body on the floor rather than the people that are screaming in the background. Um, so yes, continuance of care, um, getting over the fact that, you know, it's a rare event and, and building in strategies and a formula so that we can, you know, default to this way of, you know, delivering clinical care and also supporting the families is important. Um, I think the other aspect as well is the pressure that practitioners feel when they're being watched by by, by relatives, um, and um, there is um, there are things alluded to in the literature regarding um, you know fear about medical legal aspects um, concerns, also um, uh, the fact that. The confounding factor, I suppose you could say, you know, are the relatives going to force them to do something, going to change the care, you know, going to, you, know, you must work for longer, you must do something else. That, that Those are the sort of issues yeah. that we're faced 
with, I think, when we come on... So balancing family expectations versus clinical expectations, yeah. Yeah, definitely, yes. So the sort of strategy that, that, that I've since developed and employed and, and written about kind of deals with some of those issues. Yeah, I think you're actually, you kind of spot on with that, the, the kind of, the unease perhaps as, as <coughs> medical professionals to be observed by anyone while we work actually, um, outside of our own sphere mm. and our own comfort zone. And I, I, yeah, for me, when I first started sort of doing what you, you describe and bringing families in and involved with more, I found it incredibly uncomfortable and I I'm not really sure why. Um, and it took me for quite a, probably a couple of years actually to become comfortable with, with having family members there because it does add an extra challenge, I think, doesn't it? Yeah. To what's already a difficult you know, patient to deal with. Definitely, yeah, for those reasons, yes, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah it's true, it's a real place. It certainly does. Um, just before we go on, um, yeah, do, do, Rich, do you feel like your bandwidth, uh, as Nick quite eloquently articulated, just, you know, his bandwidth has been stretched? Yeah. Do you feel like your bandwidth has been stretched, and do you feel like it's kind of, it's far more widens now when you get on scene do you, do you see the family member in the corner do you manage to yeah I do I think so uh, yeah remembering back to when I first qualified and there's a paramedic and actually before then rather shamefully actually I remember thinking you know families I, I can, can't remember times when I can remember families being on scene yeah. um, now obviously yeah, they, they must it? have been yeah, yeah. yeah they must and, have and interesting going there. back to that Croydon job when I said to the, the guys who were upstairs in the bedroom working on this um, gentleman you know um, you know, has anyone engaged the family? No one had, but one of them said, oh, I can't even remember anyone being there. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone, someone must have made the 999 call if it's in a house particularly, and someone must have let us in, yeah. pretty much always. Um, but I, yeah, I, and I, I remember thinking, <clears> about when, when I knew this topic was coming up, and we, I, I started to try and think, and um, it was only as I got, sort of, even when I became a qualified paramedic, and it's, actually it's really difficult for me to remember a time when I dealt with family members, which means mm. I didn't. Um, now, something in the last couple of years, actually, I can I can now cite jobs where I know I did. And I think every patient is different, aren't they? And, and some some family members are incredibly stoic and can can take a huge amount of information and, and they process mm. it and it's done. And others they can't, and it, that's that's contextual and it's it's personal. Um, and I think often I find that the patients that are the most challenging actually also have the most challenging family, and that's not because they're that type of person. It's because it's the biggest surprise. Yeah. It's the most unusual event. It's it's mm. the real. It's the younger patients. It's your your, your brittle asthma collapses. Your 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 relatively young cardiac events. It's those sort of patients because the family were never expecting anything like that. Um, no, I think one of the things we have to be careful of is is assuming that you know any sort of demonstration of emotion is in some way linked to what's going underneath the surface. And it's interesting you mentioned the stoic patient, and I think broadly speaking, you can sort of, at the risk of sort of uh, over categorising, you can think of patient or relative relatives of patients' responses being either stoic. Um, extremely demonstrable as with the example I was talking about earlier um, and um, and also those that are sort of you know just shocked into stunned silence yeah um, mm -hmm. and you never really know so part of the strategy is actually appreciating you know what might be going on under the surface and answering some of those issues concerns um, and remembering of course that it's interesting when you look at sort of complaints to healthcare. Um, most of it is not about the test technical aspects yes. of care. Mm, a lot yeah. of it is down to the the attitudes and what you say. In fact, often relatives don't 
remember, or patients, if we're speaking more generally, don't remember um, what's said to them. They know how they were made to feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and certainly, um, yes, it's very easy to think sort of someone who's... I remember um, attending the cardiac arrest to a couple that were living out their retirement in a hotel. Um, and the uh, husband of this wife collapsed one evening during a meal. Um, we attended. It was looking likely that we were going to uh, arrive at death decision. So I went over and, you know, still after sort of four years of being an APP, there's still some trepidation and thinking, right, okay, I've got to speak to this, you know, lady about, you know, this husband, you know, this man she's been with for, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, and uh, straight away, you know, very stoic, um, you know, showing more concern for me yeah. <laughs> than yeah. she was for, and, and for the hosp- for the hotel staff as well that were, were really upset. Um, but nevertheless, you know, um, you go there and you deliver the message carefully and sensitively because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day. And actually, these, in doing what we do in this very compressed time frame, uh, intense, dynamic kind of um, environment that is cardiac arrest management, um, we're actually really, on behalf of the relatives, investing in their sort of tomorrow, next month, next year, so that they at least come away with this sense of, you know, they were nice, they were competent, you know, they did all that they could, um, and, you know, we don't fall into some of the pitfalls of, um, you know, that people complain about when, when they don't have good experiences in general, but particularly of healthcare, which is not being communicated to, um, feeling out of control. You know, we sort of try to, you know, in the way we go forward, mitigate some of those things. And um, I think that, so that actually brings me on to the next point that I yeah. wanted to cover, actually. So how, how do you achieve this then? So what, mm. what are kind of the main points you, you aim, if you like? If you, so I'm guessing now you, you kind of have a structure or an idea in your head or a, a pattern that you use. Yeah. What, so if, yeah, we've got paramedics, pre-hospital staff, anyone really listen to this, mm. um, what sort of things do you think they should try to cover to help deliver that message in a better way? Sure. So we, we said that, you know, it's a rare event and, you know, how do you get good at something? I mean, you know, you, you have a lot of training, you have a lot of experience and you have really good governance. And unfortunately, we know that when it comes to cardiac arrest, you know, certain experience isn't, you know, uh, what most paramedics get of, um, cardiac arrest so how do we sort of mitigate um, for that well it's it's coming up with some sort of structure some sort of framework that crews can rely on when they're faced with this sort of circumstance and although I break it down into sort of four stages um, I don't want to be too prescriptive because pre-hospital care in general let alone cardiac arrest management is very dynamic so you know it's about I'm not a great fan of um, sort of um, models and formulas uh, my pockets generally could bulge with all yeah. the algorithms but nevertheless you know in order to teach something models can be useful so um uh, yeah so so yes i'm going to talk about the four stages but um it might actually be for example for me stage two and three are generally sort of combined um but from from sort of top to bottom you know most cardiac arrests happen at home you burst into someone's house in green with your equipment after a 999 call um, and let's not forget the call takers that have to deal with you know these situations using only their voice and instructing chest compressions but we're never usually a feature of someone's day we're always unexpected um, we turn up there's stress there's anxiety there's a body on the floor there's the imperative as I say to get on and deal with clinical care but how can we nod towards 
I suppose, supporting the family in that situation. I think, um, you know, we've all seen this hashtag, my name is, um, and um, I think there's real value in that, in, in actually giving your name. I usually try to say my name as much as possible to people when I'm talking to them. Um, I think you, you connect with people when you give them your name. Yeah. So yeah. I, the first thing I usually say is, my name's Nick. And I appreciate not everybody in a pre-hospital environment is a paramedic, but there is power in, in, in the word paramedic. Um, I once was off duty um, in a uh, shopping centre and saw somebody collapse. Um, at the the um, wife of the, the gentleman was there. He seemed alright. He seemed chatting to people. Uh, no one wanted to move him, of course, as, as they don't. Um, but his wife was sitting in a chair that someone had brought out from a shop. And I went over to her and I said, um, Oh, sorry to bother you. My name's Nick. I'm a paramedic. I'm just off duty. Um, is everything alright? Anyway, the ambulance arrived. The, the crew were doing an ECG of the gentleman in the back of the vehicle. And she just before she went, she said, she put a hand on my shoulder and said, when you came over and you said your name was Nick and you were a paramedic, it was like my guardian angel had arrived. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's pretty much how she said it. And I would never describe myself as that. But, but there, were, there was power in that. Yeah. And I think actually often cuts through a lot of the fear and the panic. Yeah. My name is Nick. I'm a paramedic. I'm here to help. Yeah. So that kind of... There's reassurance in that statement. The second aspect is that they're very much in the space that you need to occupy. We talk about this 360 axis and having space and room to place equipment in set positions and carry on with certain tasks. That's very difficult when you've got relatives that are in that space, sometimes touching the patient, sometimes laying on the patient, you know, certainly making lots of noise. Um, so, Usually what comes out of my mouth, mouth next is, <clears throat> we're, I'm here to help, but we just need a little bit of room to do what we need to do immediately, and then I'll come and update you as soon as possible. Now, <clears throat> I, I've drawn that out a bit, but really, you know, they, they sh that shouldn't take any more than 10 seconds as you're approaching the patient, mm. as you're taking in the scene, as you're putting bags down, as you're planning where to move the patient to. So that's my stage one, really. Yeah. My name is, I'm a paramedic, I'm a technician, I'm a first aider, I'm, I'm here to help you, I just need some room and I'll come and update you as soon as possible. And that can really, I think, be as much as you can do, yeah. um, you know, in that situation. Clearly, once cardiac arrest gets established um, and BLS moves to ALS, there's opportunity for having a more formal conversation with the, yeah. with the family. Um, and what I usually do at some opportune moment is break away and using plain language as I can, make, make sure you're talking to the relative. I've got a rather embarrassing story of, of communicating with a neighbour of several doors down, thinking that they were the wife of the patient, um, where, whereas the wife was in the back garden with a few other family members, and I didn't realise it until I came to the point of where we actually had to break bad news. So make sure you're speaking to the people that you need to speak to. Make sure that the people that are there... Um, are happy and you haven't got onlookers. I try not to do it in a very public space, but nevertheless. And I usually direct my attention at the, what you might call, I suppose, the nearest next of kin, um, and state that the patient 
is in cardiac arrest. I usually reiterate my name and, and, and my profession. I think that's good because I think the first time people listen to your name, they're just not listening per se. The, the gravity of the situation, mm. I found certainly found that. Yeah. Having to re, I think you're, you're so spot on, Nick. You know, it, that personal touch of, of introducing with your name, mm. but then also reiterating your <coughs> name. Um, because initially, in extremists, it's funny, we talk about bandwidth and task focus, mm. don't we? But actually, patients become their bandwidth reducers and their oh, task completely. focus. You know, yeah. their peripheral vision, but, sorry, not even the peripheral vision, their hearing goes, mm. their ability to, to, to listen. So re-emphasizing your name, and it might just stick that second time you say it. But yeah, no. No, definitely. And you were just about to say something, sorry, about the, just the phraseology you use is quite quite simple, quite easy to engage with. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so pumping the blood around the heart, I suppose, or, or we're kind of, we're doing, just you, de- you you sort of de-escalate the phraseology, you make the phraseology easy to engage with. Yes, absolutely, yes. And, and, and this, this is really an extension of, of, in many ways, of what paramedics do ordinarily. You know, you adapt your communication yeah. style to the patient that you're dealing with, and you use simple language that sort of, you know, explains your actions, and actually, you know, makes your job easier as well. Yeah. And, you know, ironically, sometimes when we want to do clinical things, we have to deal with the non-clinical things first. There's this sort of saying I've got, which is a sort of slow down to speed up, you know. Sometimes, like, for example, a paediatric arrest that I did where the, um, the mother was laying across the child, you know, actually saying to her, you know, my name is, this is who I am, you know, and, and that called for probably stepping up a little bit. So I, I had to say, we can't save his life unless you move back a little bit and we're able to actually do the things we need to do. Come over here, hold his hand, and you move things forward in that way. But, but essentially, um, it ordinarily, it's interesting how many relatives do sort of move themselves away or, and, and are gathered in a, another room whilst, you know, all the kind of clinical care happens in the room that the patient's in. Yeah, I've often thought that, and I wonder if that goes back to where you, you gave your example with when you're off duty and you said on the paramedic stuff, I think the, for me, sometimes it looks like, so before we get there, the, the responsibility for saving the relative is with their loved ones. They're the ones that are being taught through CPR and things over the phone. They're the ones that are trying to do their best. Mm. And I think I wonder sometimes when we walk in the room with the dissolution of that responsibility from them to us, mm. that then naturally I think they give themselves a bit of space and they walk away and give themselves time to yeah. to come away from that pressure of the situation. Because I think actually medical professionals do that. Once we're in if we're in a high pressure situation, yeah. once we don't need to be and it's finished, we tend to remove ourselves from the that you've got geography of where we were when we dealt with the pressure and just step out of the room, don't we? Mm. And it's perhaps it's just quite a You see a similar thing in hospitals as well, don't you, with yeah. the relatives' room. It's like, you know, for some reason, and we could explore, it's probably another podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Explore the psychology of, of how people move around, you know, given certain... Under stress. Yeah. But, but essentially, having, having done the, the, um, the sort of stage one introductions, you know, uh, when you go to then, when you establish ALS, and you go to speak to the, um, the relatives... I think the first thing is to say, you know, the patient's in cardiac arrest and what that means. Their heart stopped, they're not breathing. That's often met with a reaction um, and you might need to pause while that, you know, news is absorbed. And then I don't usually, if at all, um, cover any more than four essential tasks that we're engaged in. I may not do that given the situation. And, and this is why I don't like to be too prescriptive because you, you're weighing up so many sort of, you know, the verbal, non-verbal cues um, in terms of what's appropriate to say, you know, 
everything is contextual and there is, you know, pre-hospital care is so multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Um, but four tasks would be, as you said, Owen, I think, you know, pushing on the chest um, to pump blood, mm-hmm. um, a breathing. I mean, you know, cardiac arrest management in a pre-hospital environment particularly is quite brutal. Um, so it, it's probably worthwhile explaining some of our activities. We're pushing on the chest or indeed the for example, in London, the Lucas device is pushing on the chest to pump blood. Um, the breathing tube is to breathe for the patient because they're not breathing for themselves. Um, we're giving the patient drugs into their vein to try to start their heart, keep it simple. Um, and uh, we're monitoring them on our monitors, you know, particularly their heart rhythm. I think it's appropriate at this stage as well to cover any obvious queries that they might have. Sometimes, as you said, uh, Owen, you know, relatives bandwidth are, you know, is absolutely at a max and they're not necessarily able to articulate. So we need to take some of that load and perhaps deal with other issues that might be relevant and also invite questions. And usually before I go away and go back to the patient, I usually say, you know, again, my name's Nick. If you've got a question, call my name and I'll get to you as soon as I can. Okay. Often, I think stage two and three are a little bit combined, but stage three is probably um, going back to that phrase it used, Owen, you know, balancing expectations. Um, by now, you're probably at the point where, by the time you speak to them again, or even you know, at that you know, first full sort of contact with the family um, to explain the situation, you know the likely outcome. Um, you might not, of course, and indeed, you know, I think, you know, they're, they're, another sort of paramount is that we're honest with patients as well and don't try to, people will watch you and they'll, they'll know if you're sort of lying, uh, even if you're lying with good intent. Um, so really the, the two outcomes that they're interested in that's worth sort of uh, articulating in terms of the, the relatives is that the patient responds in some way and you take them to hospital or they don't and you you know that they've died. So that was, I was going to ask you that question, actually. Is how do you deal with that uncertainty? And I think you probably just answered that question, that you, you're honest about that uncertainty, I guess. Yeah. So, so often that is another moment where you get that, that bomb, that, so there's that bombshell, that, that, that horror moment where actually death is a real um, possibility. Yeah. Whilst the process, to some extent, as I see it, is about taking people more gradually from this unexpected thing has happened, someone's collapsed and they're not waking up to, sorry, they've died. Whilst you're not doing what perhaps many of us have done in the past, um, you know, if we're perfectly honest, and kind of sideline the family, only to turn up to them sort of an hour later and go, oh, by the way, they're dead. Which, you know, and I can think of one particular um, case in question from many years ago, um, and where I was just about to do that before the wife said, oh, can you tell him when he wakes up that and I can't remember what she said but that really highlighted my complete lack of understanding in terms of where we think as healthcare practitioners that when we're you know doing 30 to 2 on the chest that that means something to everybody else yes clearly it didn't to her and that that was that was a shortcoming of mine not of hers i think well, that's a hollywoodization of, yeah, of these yeah. films you know that, that you know a little bit of cpr a little bit of um rescue breaths and these patients just defibrillating asystole and they stand up and have a coffee <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, just, yeah we've all right. seen it and cringed don't and we? i think you're right actually the we understand the situation well because that's our day job and mm. we should understand that situation well um, there's no reason why 
anyone's relative should understand that reason well and we have to accept that no i mean i i wouldn't we accept, have to take that on us but if i take my phone to a shop to be repaired i don't expect them to know that i don't expect them to expect me mm. to know what they're doing in the back room yeah of course. you know yeah. Um, yeah. i don't know anything about about phones or anything like that and that's you know it's, we should we need to remember that with relatives they are no, quite. they don't have the knowledge and understanding <clears throat> we have and we do forget no. strangely no, that's it. We're the experts and we need to communicate appropriately. Same as when I take my car into a garage. You know, I take it to the same garage. I know the guy really well. I don't understand what goes on under the hood. Yeah. But I expect him to know to repair it and explain to me in, in a, in a non-mechanical... In a simple way that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that you can get. That yeah. Actually, this has gone wrong and this is what we've done about it. So yeah. we, we have to you know, bear that in mind. Um, so, yeah, if we, I mean, if we just recap. So that entrance, that introducing yourself, you know, trying to cut through the chaos... You know, we're here to help. My name is IMA. Please move back. We'll update you. Um, to um, the contact with the family where we explain in lay terms what's happened. We then move to a stage um, where we balance expectations. And I suppose, just moving on, to, you know, before we move on to the sort of final stage, uh, if I can term it like that, in some ways, to put it brutally, you're... you're it sounds awful to say, but you're taking hope away, I guess, um, and introducing the you know harsh reality of the situation. Whilst we want to care for the relatives as much as we can and look after and protect them, you can't tell someone that their husband, wife, daughter, you know, sister has died, and that not be a big thing. Mm. And um, and so. What we're doing, in effect, is avoiding the, the, the situation that we just talked about, that we sideline the families and then sort of drop the bombshell right at the end when they were completely unexpecting it. Um, and in doing that, um, we're moving on to sort of stage four, where we, where we do actually break bad news. I, I think, for me, one of the key things in, in doing this is... Um, and funnily enough, going back to the job that I was talking about earlier, one of the... Um, advanced paramedics in the control room one of the things that he said to me which I've done since then is put the death in the past context what you want to try to do I guess is balance ambiguity with finality so you don't want to be ambiguous you want to be able to say this has happened you want to avoid a phrase I guess like um, I think it's probably time we should stop well, you know, that doesn't really instill a lot of confidence yeah. when you hear that. And that, that I guess that also can potentially conjure up a, a potential future where you don't stop. And actually yes. it doesn't, the inevitable death isn't inevitable anymore. Yes, it addresses sort of your point that you were making earlier, um, Rich. Um, how do you actually, you know, move to that place? Mm -hmm. and, and, and by putting it in the past context... With everything you're doing, you're, you're, you're using your name, you're, you know, you're naturally how you explain things in that lay sense, your body language, the fact that you're connecting with the relatives, you know, demonstrates sensitivity. But, you know, you want to instill confidence so that then, you know, tomorrow, the next day and the next day, they can know that everything was done. Yeah. Um, so, um, and perhaps beyond the, the scope of the, the, the podcast, but there are a number of ways, and I, and I would sort of encourage people to think about, you know, what they could say that would um, 
instill the finality of something in terms of you know you've really done all that you clinically can and talking about the you know the time scale um, involved um, and as well you know there is that concern that some relatives have as much as it impressive is impressive to see all that we do pre-hospitally and uh, you know, all that we bring in terms of our clinical equipment you know there is that you know concern that well perhaps the hospital can do something else yeah um, and we know that that's just not the case and that's why we can confidently make you know death decisions in the pre-hospital um, environment and we have been doing so for years so mitigating some of that appropriately um, but certainly you know putting it in a past context um, and as I'm sure we're pretty much all aware of now you're using the word dead died yeah. uh, rather than moved on passed away is, to a better is, place. Isn't, yes exactly yeah. Um, yeah so you know bringing dignity really at that, at that moment and um, I should add as well actually um, that you know when you've contacted you know when you make contact with the family you know during the process giving them a non-pressured choice to come in and be with the, with their, their loved one as well it's certainly something that you need to to, to think about um, and probably involve the practitioners thinking about the space that you've got obviously the continuance of clinical care um, but it can be it can be a really great thing and very much worthwhile I remember one cardiac arrest where um, a husband of a wife collapsed upstairs um, the wife attended could see that the, the her husband was in cardiac arrest phone 999 we moved him to the landing so that we could carry out the resuscitation. And, um, and we actually positioned her um, at the top of the stairs so that the, we could outstretch the patient's, I think, left arm so that she could hold his hand during the time that we could resuscitate and didn't interfere with the clinical care at all. Um, and, um, and she just talked to him throughout the whole resuscitation. Um, and although we had a very teary debrief in the ambulance afterwards, it didn't impact on you know, what we were able to do for the patient and it didn't distract us uh, in any way at all. And it very much felt like the right thing to do. So just to summarise, Nick, because uh, I think we're going to come <coughs> in to land on this, um, just, if you could just really quickly summarise those four points um, and then I think we'll broach another topic, another further topics in a further episode. But we'll, we'll um, yeah, could you just summarise those four points? And I think I think those are really four key points. Um, and then we'll go on in another topic. So I, think, I find this hugely interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think we've got a lot more to expand on. I think I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of time. Um, so if you could just hit, go, go over those, those four and then we'll come into land on. Sure. So I think probably, you know, bear in mind, you know, when you come into an environment when there's a cardiac arrest, you know, there's lots of chaos, confusion. Deal with some of the non-clinical factors that slow down to speed up before you go straight to the patient and deliver care in a, in a suboptimal way where you haven't addressed the relatives at all. Uh, make the most of the environment. Um, moving on afterwards, then obviously updating the family. Use plain language. Um, explain the situation. Certainly don't lie. Um, then moving on to balancing expectations, inviting the relatives, if appropriate, to be with the patient. And when you do that, you do take the ownership on yourself to talk through, you know, what you're doing. Um, and then moving on to sort of breaking bad news, certainly not being ambiguous, but also being sensitive 
and really impressing the finality of that decision so that they can have the confidence. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's really good points. Yeah, I think they are. Um, there's a lot more to be said on this. We are going to talk a lot more on this um, in another podcast. So we're going to break this up because this is such a huge topic. But uh, Nick, thanks for being for, with us today. You're and, welcome. Um, Rich, anything else from you? No, I think that's fantastic. It's really good to start to think about these sort of things. So I think there's a whole wealth of learning that we need to do as a profession to make this better. And this is great. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. You're Absolutely. welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> thanks. This podcast was presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and any views we express are our own. And this is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics, nurses and doctors easy to access set of resources and education materials wherever you are. So take a look in the footnotes of this podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do, how much content we put out there for your education.